Warning. Explicit content. Listener discretion is advised. Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Great Northeast BJJ podcast. In this episode, we talk to UFC commentator John Anik about Khabib versus Tony Ferguson, Ryan Hall, Gary Tonin, rolling with Kenny Florian, the time I stalked him in the sauna in Oklahoma City, Tom Brady, all the important stuff. As always, this episode is brought to you by the world-famous Tortuga Soap Company. All the things you need to keep you looking and smelling good. Use the discount code PODCAST and get 20% off your order. www.tortugasoap.com If you want to come visit us, you should come check us out at Port City BJJ in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. Home of the Great Northeast BJJ Podcast. We'd love to train with you. PortCityBJJ.com And this podcast is also brought to you by BJJ Prehab. It's a program designed to help you prevent injuries and keep you on the mat training. BJJPrehab.com Thanks everybody for listening. We really appreciate the support. Hope everybody's doing alright out there. Stay healthy people. Peace. Welcome, man. Thanks for coming on the podcast. We really appreciate it. My absolute pleasure. How's everybody doing out there? All right? We're doing all right. Good. Hey, so because this is a BJJ podcast and you're an MMA announcer, I thought I would start you off with a really tough one. Yeah. Um, And you live, you're from Boston, but live in Florida. Who's going to win more games this year if they play, the Patriots or the Buccaneers? I'm glad you didn't ask me how many jujitsu classes in a row that I have skipped to start. So I feel much more comfortable answering this question. I think there are so many variables, right? I mean, free agency is obviously underway. We got to see how the NFL draft goes. We don't even know who's QB1 for the New England Patriots right now. I'm in the minority of Patriots fans who's excited to see what Belichick and Brady can do, you know, without the other. Uh, But I think the Buccaneers in a tough division can win 10 games. Um, but again, I think the Vegas totals, the over-under for win totals for Tampa Bay and New England, I haven't looked. I think they'll be pretty similar, you know, around nine and a half, ten, ten and a half wins. Yeah, I think that, that New England offense is going to be pretty anemic this year, given that it's a quarterback that's not, you know, really, you know, with, with Stidham, might not be really adjusted to the system and to starting NFL games. But on the same, at the same time, Tom Brady is with an offense and a, and a coordinator he's never worked with before, and we've never seen that. So, you know, but he does have weapons now, that's for sure. Yeah, and I think health too, right? Health is a big part of the NFL, right? I mean, a third of the roster changes over every year, essentially, and if you can't stay healthy, you really don't have a chance. Go ahead, man. Don't count out Belichick, Jay. Uh, I, I don't. Nope. I, just, I think the defense will be great. I think the defense will be really solid, but they haven't to date really added any offensive weapons, which was a big problem for the Patriots last year, even with Tom Brady, the greatest quarterback ever throwing the ball. Um, you know, you take that and you replace him with another quarterback with far less experience um, and kind of credentials under his belt. Like I can't see that offense being, you know, it was Belichick last year too, and it was a pretty anemic offense even with Tom Brady. 
Yeah, right, I guess we'll see. I mean, uh, we'll see who the running back is if Sony Michelle ends up being the guy. I think there are a lot of variables when it comes to, to New England right now, which I think makes it exciting. Candidly, for a lot of Patriots fans, the regular season games, and I say this respectfully for a franchise that wasn't always great, the regular season games have been largely anticlimactic for several years. So I'm excited for some competitive week-to-week action. We'll see. Probably. The, the, the biggest area of pain I've gotten, I assume you're a big Bruins fan too, is yes. the, the Bruins were prepared to make such a great playoff run. and I know. It. I, feel, I, feel, I really feel bad for Zidane Chara. Even if it goes down, like they give him the Stanley Cup for being the, the, having the best record in the NHL. Right. It's an asterisk type thing, and maybe Zidane's last run at, at, at getting another Stanley Cup, and they were really poised to, to look really good in the playoffs. Yeah, 100 points already, and what a huge ask when you go from losing Game 7 a Cup Final to try to come back and, and have a good regular season, never mind win 25 games or play 25 playoff games. So I have so much respect for what it takes to win a Stanley Cup, and obviously the Bees look primed to at least make a deep run, but uh, – kind of is what it is this this new reality for a lot of us is especially sports fans is kind of hard to grapple with but uh at least we got our health i guess you know right for what's, sure what's life are you living in florida now yes what's life like uh like in florida right now well it's hard to compare it to other places i think new york obviously is an outlier right now in terms of how many cases they have you know everybody wants to bang on florida right in terms of our inability to do what is being asked governmentally in terms of the coronavirus and staying home. And I can assure you, you know, we're staying home. And maybe when I go to the grocery store once a week to get produce for the baby, uh, you know, I'm, I'm one of the few guys in masks and, and gloves at that time, which I think is a little off-putting. You're starting to see a little bit more as the weeks go on here. But uh, hunkering down, just waiting for Dana White to make a decision and uh, going to go from there. It's uh, For a lot of us parents, it's been a lot of homeschooling. Uh, which uh, gets pretty tiring. I mean, I think for those of us that are used to doing homework for 90 minutes or so every day, it's not too bad. But uh, it's a whole new world, man, you know, trying to homeschool kids and get them ready potentially for the next grade in the fall. It's, it's crazy. How old are your kids? So my daughters are eight and almost seven, and then my son is one and a half. Yeah. So we are fucking in it. <laughs> <laughs> We got like Dana schedule an event. Get me out of here. <laughs> yeah, I'm right. And hopefully I can drive there because flying to Dubai sounds like uh, a tough proposition right now. Wow. Is, is that the talk? Like, so what's the talk about the fight? So my speculation isn't really even informed speculation. The last word from Dana is that there are multiple international and domestic destinations I've always said I feel like Vegas makes the most sense if the Nevada State Athletic Commission is willing to get involved. And they had a meeting scheduled for March 25th that uh, didn't necessarily come with any resolution or finality. So I still believe if you're trying to bang out several shows in a row, and you're talking about five fight cards that have been scheduled from March 21st to April 25th, if you're trying to bang out fight cards every couple days, I think Vegas is the best place to do it. We've heard other U.S. rumors. Uh, I've heard Khabib's father drop Dubai as a possibility. I know Russia seems to be pretty clean right now as far as the coronavirus is concerned. Uh, but again, you're talking about a lot of logistics and medicals and, and things of that nature that are hurdles that need to be uh, you know, crossed before we can get where we need to get on April 18th. I think with that many fight cards in a short amount of time, uh, you know, I'm with you. Vegas makes the most sense. Keeps the, the organization from having to travel too much. 
which is obviously, you know, kind of a pain in the neck right now and pretty complicated. What about the actual fight? You know, if it goes down, you know, do you think that Ferguson can uh, keep on his feet and kind of do, do some damage and keep Khabib from, you know, putting him down, putting him on his back, working him against the cage? Yeah, I think it's a competitive fight. I think that's sort of where you laid it out. Obviously, you're a mixed martial artist. I think that's where Tony's chances uh, are going to be the best in the fight. But Tony is such a, a variable and such a wild card. And most of the elite lightweights would tell you he's a, a super tough matchup for them, if not the toughest matchup for them in the division with respect to Khabib, just because of Tony's ability to, to get you everywhere and uh, obviously his heart, and I put Khabib's heart and mental toughness right there with Tony, but uh, Tony is really willing to go to those dark places and embrace those dark places like few athletes. So I think it's a competitive fight. I think it's frustrating that it'll go down potentially without any fans in the building. I think that the promotional urgency to make this fight on April 18th is off the charts because they've tried to make this fight four times before. You can argue it's not just the biggest lightweight fight UFC history, but the biggest singular fight in UFC history, given what this division is and what these two athletes have meant to it. Uh, Tony doesn't get the body of work credit that Khabib does necessarily, but dude, Tony wins this fight. He could be considered the greatest of all time. There is so much at stake that the thought of this going down without our lifeblood, which is the fans and without proper training camps feels kind of weird. Now, if any athlete uh, can embrace this, it's Tony, right? In theory, the guy who trains by himself for six hours without stopping all indications are Khabib in Russia has a lot of able bodies uh, who are not sick and ready to go. But again, for these athletes, maybe they know more than I do, but here we are, you know, less than three weeks out. They don't know where the fight is. Khabib's got bears he can wrestle with. That's right. Yeah, he's got a lot of options there. For sure. So, dude, Dana must be like under some serious pressure right now. I said that to my wife last night, just the whole executive team, right? Because we know all these guys, you know, I'm a UFC staffer, right? And so that's why it's like people ask me, oh, are you going to go? It's like, that, I feel like it's the least I can do, right? Think about the sacrifice all these athletes and fighters are making, what the executives are doing to try to, to do right by the fighters and get these fights to happen. The least I can do as a commentator is fucking show up. So yeah, man, a lot of pressure, obviously, for the entire executive brass and uh, just knowing what the right thing is to do in terms of medicals. I mean, there's obviously a huge segment of people that, that don't think we should be putting on an event, and I respect that take as well. Um, but there are a lot of masters to try to serve. Other thing I'll say, and I've said it repeatedly, doing a lot of media, obviously, in interviews, is that for me, it's easy for me to sit here three weeks out and say, yeah, I'll, I'll meet you in Dubai. So much evolves with this coronavirus over 48 hours that who knows in a week if these guys are even going to be able to get to the same place. So a lot, lot of balls still up in the air. What do you think about that concept of the uh, kind of the more ultimate fighter feeling, you know, uh, shows where there, there's going to be no crowd. There's not going to be a ton of screaming and yelling. What effect is that going to have on fighters? I think it might even take the edge off a little bit for the fighters, but the, the feel of, you know, when they do a, a big show on HBO or, um, or on ESPN, it's, it's, there's a lot of screaming and yelling, a lot of excitement, a lot of energy. Like, what do you think it's going to be like trying to recreate that in, a, in an environment like that? It's a good question. I certainly think it could take the edge off more than, say, Dana White's Contender Series because for that show, Dana is sitting right there. And in theory, these fights, Dana, the commentators potentially will be nowhere near the octagon, right? So I do think from that standpoint, uh, it might make it feel more training-esque. 
Uh, it's crazy, man. I can't even think about a, 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 a fight of this magnitude taking place with that type of backdrop. I mean, certainly I think it's something that a lot of athletes and commentators feed off of. Uh, so for us calling this from an edit trailer, uh, would be pretty weird. You know, I, when I worked at ESPN, I called a WBC heavyweight championship fight between Vitaly Klitschko and Shannon Briggs took place in Germany. I was in Bristol, Connecticut in front of a green screen. So that wow. can be done. Um, but hopefully the athletes aren't having to deal with that. But I think to your point, it stands to reason that, uh, in some way, shape or form, it might take the edge off. Still got to get in a fist fight though. <laughs> right. If, I mean, I could, there, they got to make this fight happen. Like the rest, whatever, but they got to make it happen. You got to do it. I'm sitting here with all five of these fight cards printed. You know, people asking me how I begin the prep and, and obviously we're getting close to the time where I really would be digging in. And I don't know what this fight card is going to hold. I don't know if it's going to be 18 fights. Is it going to be 24 fights over two nights? Am I driving to Vegas? There are a lot of, uh, of things going through my head and I have plenty of time to think about these things, but I think you're right. The preservation of this singular fight, I believe it's the biggest fight in UFC history. I really do believe that with respect to Conor McGregor uh, and all the athletes that have come before Tony and Khabib, if this is the best division one through 100 and has been historically, you got one guy, 28, no, the other guy first 55 or with a double digit winning streak, two of the best, you know, four lightweights of all time the biggest fight in UFC history to your point man we got to find a way hey, I mean also 25 and 3 like you know quietly you know obviously Mark's right. top 10 25 and 3 he's beat the who's who you know the Rafael Dos Anjos the Cerrone's like he's beat everybody they put in front of him pretty much um, so oh yeah Tony can't get enough credit out of my mouth right historically and he obviously doesn't get it and What's interesting, too, Joe Silva first mentioned this fight to me, and I think it was late 2015, right after Tony had beaten Edson Barboza. And we get in the van because Joe and I were not living in Vegas at the time, so we were going back to the host hotel. And I was like, oh, you got to give a, a title shot to Tony, right? And he's like, oh, I'm thinking of doing Tony and Khabib because, of course, at the time, Khabib wasn't the champion. And here we are almost five years later. And through no lack of effort, somehow, someway, the fight still hasn't happened. I mean, if they make it happen, it's going to be the biggest fight, like, watch, too, right? Because there's nothing else to watch. There's well, no yes, other sports. I mean, I, yeah, I got to think it does a huge number. It's hard to quantify uh, how much you get hurt by not having the traditional pay-per-view preview and lead up. And I don't know how they would do media and try to, you know, get them maybe on a, a situation like we're on today where you have them side by side. But. Yes, I, I think that this would be appointment viewing for uh, global sports fans, for sure. So let's, uh, let, if we could switch gears real quick. I'm curious, yeah. be, being, a, being a Boston guy, did you know Kenny before, uh, you know, before kind of getting into the mixed martial arts scene? No, so we met uh, in January or February of 2008 when we were getting the wheels churning for MMA Live, which, as some of your viewers may know, started as a ESPN.com initiative and later went to ESPN2 in 2010. But I met him at Mark Delagrati's gym in Somerville, Massachusetts, early 2008. Uh, we did our first episode, the pilot, April 2008. And uh, obviously, we grew up very close to one another, even though we never knew each other. And I think we connected on a number of different levels. So. Uh, the friendship sort of sparked from there, and uh, obviously he was in his fighting prime at the time, which was pretty special, and, and that was when our relationship kicked off, and uh, 
thankfully has become kind of a, you know, a cornerstone of my life pretty much ever since. Awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. I had the, I had the pleasure of uh, coming up in my jujitsu career with Kenny at Boston BJJ. And um, obviously he, you know, when, when he, you know, got further into his professional career, he moved West and um, he's got, do you get a chance to get out uh, on the mats at Mirakai with them? No, I trained at American Top Team West Palm Beach under Pahumpa for a couple months, and uh, I didn't get that jujitsu bug that I was hoping to get like everybody else. You know, I enjoy hitting mitts every now and again, but uh, in my recreational time, I'm more inclined to play uh, tennis or golf. I haven't even seen Meraki, uh, other than obviously what I've seen on social media because I haven't been in that part of town since it opened, but uh, it's, it's exciting to see it take off for him, right? Because we used to talk way back when, knowing that he had one foot out the door to L.A. about a Florian Fusion West, you know, trying to do a gym, not unlike Florian Martial Arts Center that they still have in Brooklyn, Massachusetts. So uh, as you know, of course, it is not always easy to get traction with, with a BJJ gym, and clearly they have it out there in, uh, in Santa Monica. It's a beautiful right? it's, place, it's, man. It is let me gorgeous. just tell you. Don't ever roll with them because it's not fun. <laughs> oh, like, no, I, I, would, I definitely will not. Don't ever do it. Most, some people uh, you can roll with and it's fun. Rolling with Kenny Florian is not fun. Yeah, yeah I can't <laughs> Jay, imagine it. You've done it more than me. I've, I, I, have, uh, I have been underneath him a number and number of times. Like I, that, that goes back to me being like 19 or 20 years old, kind of you know being a, a brand new – starchy white belt like leaving them having, having the florians having had handed my ass to me for about an hour and a half being like getting in car, being like trying to put pins <laughs> on the wheel yeah man i have nightmares about rolling with kenny yeah sneaky heavy right that lower half man he'll he'll kill you oh, Dude, constant pressure yeah constant pressure i love it, it the amazing thing too is that that LA scene, you know, it's it's pretty saturated with jujitsu, and you know, to, to credit to Kenny, like it's a tough place to open up a new gym, and and you know, obviously he's got credentials and he's got you know a hell of a resume both in jujitsu and in MMA, but still with with the schools that are around there, it, it's tough to get going, and he's had wild success early on. And I think he picked the right partner uh, with Jason Hunt, you know, who I think uh, logistically has done a lot of things well. And I just think the overall aesthetic, I mean, you guys can see, right, they've hit on a lot of things. And, and that's the thing, too. It's like you can't miss too much when you're doing one of these in terms of the timing and everything else. And I think what's sad about it for any small business owner uh, is what we're going through right now. I mean, my twin brother owns a business down here that is, you know, on its last legs potentially, right? So I'm hopeful for all the gyms out there that uh, this isn't, um, you know, something that causes them to go under, you know, because I know with membership fees and everything else, it's uh, a tricky navigation right now. And I know Kenny trains a lot with uh, Ryan Hall lately. What's, uh, do you ever interact with Ryan Hall and get to see him? Because he's amazing. He's an unbelievable human being and obviously martial artist, and he's been on our podcast several times, and uh, he's the guy nobody wants to fight, right? And I guess it's easy for me to say that, right, as the captain of Team Florian who corners Ryan Hall, but I really, I really do believe that if you're a guy in that top 10 at featherweight, 
why you've taken that fight, right? There's a lot of downside to that matchup, and it speaks to how good Ryan is, and that says nothing about his development as a striker. I think he's still developmental in that area, but he's got a lot of tools, a lot of singular weapons, that high left kick. Uh, he's a real problem, and thankfully there are guys like Ricardo Lamas and other guys out there who are willing to give him the opportunity uh, to get that showcase fight, but uh, I, I do believe the clock is ticking, and uh, this ain't going to help things, obviously, but I'm hoping that somehow, some way, Ryan can get at least two, if not three, in this year to really try to make that push that, you know, I know at least once he wants to try to make. I've, I've been keeping an eye on him, obviously, for quite a while since he was, you know, he was a, uh, you know, in the professional grappling circuit, jiu-jitsu tournaments, all the way up into his MMA career. And, you know, you just, he kind of disappeared, and you didn't see him fighting, and you wondered why you weren't seeing more Ryan Hall in the UFC. And he says nobody wants to fight him. And, and, I, and I can see why, you know what I mean? His record, there's a lot to lose and not much to gain by fighting Ryan Hall because his record doesn't, it's not a big boost for a, a top 10 fighter to go and fight Ryan Hall. And there's a lot to risk. Right. And oftentimes the rankings can take care of that a little bit. If he has a number six next to his name, uh, then guys are okay fighting him, right? But to your point, yeah, they got to find the upside and, uh, you know, it, again, it's going to make for most guys for a very frustrating, if not suffocating night at the office. So uh, I can understand why guys would have some pause. But uh, again, a big name like Lamas gives him, I think, the platform that he's been looking for. So we'll see what uh, what he can do with it. Absolutely. So the first time, well, I don't know if you remember this, but I met you in Oklahoma City and uh, I was with Gabe. Gabe and I right. cornered John Anik in the in the sauna. And put the full yep. court press on him, dude. Yep, yep. Gabe still texts me every uh, every now and again. I think I have him saved as Gabe Powell just so I made the connection <laughs> with Devin. <laughs> I, I was like, John, you should come do this podcast with us, a jiu-jitsu podcast, man. Come on. like you want. He's like, yeah, yeah. Like trying to inch out the door, you know what I mean? <laughs> oh, it took you this long to ask me to do it? Did, or did we – yeah, I got nervous. No, I'm just kidding. Because <laughs> um, you're, you're one for one in terms of asking me to do it. I said, yeah, right? first time. Um, <laughs> we normally try to do it as like a live thing where we go to an academy, roll with the people, then talk right. on the mats after. But obviously, you know, you can't do that now. So we're hitting up people that I'm right. on my list. Yeah, it's, I really feel for the whole martial arts community. I'm not a lifelong martial artist, but uh, – I, I can't even imagine what it's like being cooped up and not being able to have that daily exchange or what is for most scrapplers, I think, a daily, if not six day a week exchange. So, yeah, I'm sure Kenflo's going fucking nuts. Uh, nuts. But, you know, I think they've been in there doing a few tutorials, you know, trying to wet the appetite, wet the beak a little bit. But, yeah, man, nothing easy about it. I mean, I think uh, – I've just thrown myself into cooking and cleaning and childcare and homeschooling. And uh, the days actually are going pretty quickly because there's so much goddamn shit to do. Um, but yeah, it's crazy. I can't wait for a fight, right? Like I, I know I might put myself at risk and, and if I come home, I would be away from my family. If I would even come home, I don't know, but uh, you know, I'm, I'm chomping at the bit to get out so I can imagine what it's like for jujitsu guys, you know? I heard uh, Laird Hamilton one time talking about like when there's no waves and how depressed he gets, and he was like, "Yeah, imagine, imagine if you're a dragon slayer, and then all of a sudden there were no more dragons." And I was right. like, "Oh, that's how I feel." Yeah, no, right, that's a good analogy. Yeah, well, and I think too for us, we're so conditioned to 41 of 52 Saturday nights a year. 
we have a live UFC event. And right. if we're not doing that event, you know, I probably did 25 of them last year, but if I'm not doing that event, I'm prepping for one, you know? So, uh, this is a, a weird reality. I mean, I can't, it's like, I, I normally, I don't want my boss to text me. Now I'm like praying he gets in touch with me, you know? Right. It's, it, it's definitely true. And you look at kind of the industry we're in collectively, you know, we've already mentioned jujitsu schools. We've already mentioned fighters. We've already, you know, obviously the promotions are hurting because they can't do anything. The fighters are, are depending on purses to pay for their training and the purse, you know, pay for their right. Pay the rent, you know what I mean? Car payments, put food on the table, things like that. Uh, it's, but it's, it's kind of a metaphor for what everybody is dealing with. You know, there's, there's people that sell used cars, there's lawyers, there's, you know, train conductors, there's all these different people that do different stuff. And they're all kind of in this position where uh, there's a lot of uncertainty, even if they are still working, there's tremendous uncertainty for what they'll be doing next week. Yeah. I mean, we could name a profession and do a whole podcast on what they're going for. You know, for realtors, you're supposed to be showing homes right now. I mean, any profession is dealing with it. But for our purposes, what these fighters potentially are dealing with, even if you eliminate the weight cutting thing, right? But I mean, try try trying to make weight with all of this. You don't even know what city you're fighting in, trying to get some sort of plan together if you are someone who cuts 15, 20 plus pounds. Forgetting all of that, just trying to get the bodies and the competition. And, you know, I'm sure some of the conversations are, hey, can you fight with one corner man? Do you have somewhere you can even get a medical done, right? Like we're sitting here on five fight cards, right? Let's see how many of these fighters can actually get cleared, right? And and have a doctor agree that giving the fighter the medical right now is his the best use of his time, you know? So it's just, it's just nuts, man. It really is. And my heart obviously goes out to everybody who's uh, – you know, helping others and other people in, in one way, shape or form. Yeah. Think, think about the guys that are on injury protocol and concussion protocol too. They've got to get scans before they can go back and fight again. And I, I'm sure that's deemed non-essential at this point. You know what I mean? It's hard to Great get point. Point that. Man, um, you know what I just thought of too in Oklahoma that time I, I talked to Robert Fallis on the, on the treadmills and I was like, man, we're talking about jujitsu and Chris Howder and, and sport jujitsu and, you know, all this stuff. And I was like, dude, let's do a podcast. podcast. He's like, I'd love to, man. And, uh, and now he's no longer with us. So um, I've totally forgot about that until right now thinking about thinking about that. So not to be super depressing, but no. Paulus was uh, a really good man, and I was happy to have a personal relationship and connection with him. And gosh, the whole the whole story is just really devastating. I got to have uh, breakfast with uh, his widow, so to speak. You know, his surviving girlfriend and his surviving brother. Uh, as many of you know, Paulus uh, took his own life, as did one of his other brothers, and that seemed to be kind of the last straw for Robert, I think. But uh, his surviving brother and his uh, his girlfriend then just heavy stuff, you know, um, but he obviously made a huge contribution. I love that he was able to break through and win a UFC title with Misha Tate. And, uh, yeah, he can talk the game, right? He had a voice for broadcast and I'll tell you right now, I mean, that dude, there was, so I, every time I saw him, I was like, dude, you should be getting paid to just sit in your house, voice some shit for people. He's, he's like, I was like, dude, I do a jujitsu podcast. He's like, I got a lot to say. I was like, all right, yeah, man, let's do it. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, I mean, we should probably talk about uh, what's up with uh, John Jones on, in quarantine. Ooh, man. And 
You know, it's uh, it's a loaded question. I've stood behind him as the promotion has, and I have valiantly said in people's faces uh, that he was going to come out the other side and be a promotional and pay-per-view horse for this company. And uh, it looked like he was going to do that for a little while, right? Was keeping an active uh, schedule and, and was keeping it on the straight and narrow. And, uh, you know, I guess the sad part for me is when I see that he was really just, you know, yes, drunk, yes, driving allegedly, right? But pulled over talking to homeless people, just being John Jones. And when I've seen him in, in certain fan settings, uh, I see there's a lot of good and good egg in there. So I think it's sad for me, you know, having the personal relationship with him that I do to see it spiral this way. Obviously his coaches and particularly his coaches and his support system, uh, you know, they've made money with him recently, but they've all stood by him when those purses weren't coming in because transgressions were preventing him from fighting. And so I feel bad for the coaches. I feel bad for Malky and Abe Kawa, who have invested a lot in John and stood behind him. And, uh, you know, I feel bad for his daughters, obviously, and, and his fiance. And, uh, you know, uh, I know it's easy for a lot of people to criticize right now and say, I told you so, and whatever else. But uh, I don't know. It's just pretty sad to me, man. I don't know what else to say. I'm, you know, I'm hoping that, uh, you know, somehow, some way, sometimes you got to bottom out to really affect change. And, Maybe if there's jail time here, he'll bottom out. I don't know. Do you think so? Um, you know, there's a lot of speculation when we like talk about folks like Antonio Brown, who, who their behavior has just altered in such a way, and you say maybe this is, you know, this has something to do with concussions or shots he's taken that's kind of affecting his brain in a PTSD sort of way that is driving some of this activity. Do you think that could be true for John Jones? Well, I think to dismiss it. Uh, would be ignorant, right? I mean, to just be dismissive of it as a factor isn't fair. So sure, I think there could be something to that. Uh, but I don't want to step too far out of my lane in terms of the medicine and everything else. But yes, the the behavior, even if you could say for John Jones, maybe it is characteristic of him. Uh, it just, right, hire a driver for 50 grand a year. You know, he'll be on call anytime you need, even if you need to get within a global pandemic, even if you need to, you know, get out of Dodge for a little while, you know, offer him 2K to come pick you up, whatever it takes. But uh, I don't know. I just, uh, and I think he was crying on the police video, if not mistaken. I don't know. The whole thing is just really, uh, really sad. Well, I'll tell you the impression that I've gotten, and obviously this is as a viewer, I, you know, I don't know him personally or anything like that, but um, he does seem like a pretty genuine guy. And so from that perspective, you don't want to see someone's career continue. Like it's painful to watch when someone's career, they keep on doing damage to themselves. And then from a fan perspective, there's almost nothing as exciting as watching him walk into that cage. Um, you know, he's, yeah. such, he's got such a free style of the way that he fights. He's really capable of just about anything. You know, he submits black belts. He knocks out like amazing strikers. You know what I mean? He can go toe to toe with anybody. He can play the athletic game. He's a smart fighter. Uh, and just tremendously exciting. Yeah, he's the greatest mixed martial arts athlete that I've ever seen. It's interesting you sort of mention him as coming off as genuine because I think those who would criticize him, uh, rightfully so or otherwise, Daniel Cormier would tell you he's the furthest thing from genuine. And yet, if I'm only going by my personal interactions and encounters, by and large, a relationship that I've had with John Jones that dates to 2011. He's been pretty damn consistent with me, respectful with me, given me as much time as I've ever needed in fighter meetings and otherwise. So I would largely agree with you that 
he has been real and the real article to me, even though largely people have a different perception. But as far as the fighter is concerned, it's very sad that this first ballot Hall of Famer Michael Jordan type um, may never fight in the UFC again, right? I mean, at one point, you're going to hit a wall where it just becomes the point of no return, and uh, hopefully we're not there yet. Well, the, the, the reality is that these guys are, are – they're professionals to fight, not to talk on a microphone. So I, I think a lot of times, you know, across the industry, what you see happen is guys can make mistakes when you put a microphone in front of their faces because it's not what they're, you know, professionally gifted to do. So that you can – you know, if you're a professional at asking questions and backing people into corners like people try to do with Bill Belichick all the time, you know, you get a fighter who hasn't maybe hasn't done as much or doesn't have as much – you know, savviness around what to say and what not to say to preserve his professional career. It's pretty easy to walk fighters down the wrong path in front of a microphone and make them look bad. And unfortunately, we're in a world where if someone makes a mistake or says the wrong thing, they get crucified immediately, regardless of what industry they're in. Right. And, you know, and I don't mean to make light of this, but just for the sake of conversation, when I first saw the report, I was doing an Instagram live with Paul Felder. And my first inclination was to say, Man, this Albuquerque Police Department, they got it out for John Jones. I mean, do they have two guys who are just assigned to know where this guy is? And, uh, you know, anytime a vehicle leaves the Jones compound, is somebody following this guy? Um, because come on, man, right? Like, and again, like everybody's telling me that John Jones got arrested. And, I'm, you know, I'm seeing, and then so eventually you have to give it some credence. I'm like, are you kidding me? You know, did this really possibly happen again and i think anybody who's had any brush with the law and wants the government out of their life as much as possible um i just i am really mind numbed by this latest one man i just i just can't believe it and maybe i'm dumb and maybe i'm ignorant but i can't believe but it's true though that like i mean once you're in if you're known to get in trouble they're gonna be looking for you and he stands out in albuquerque you know what i mean so it's like yeah man and i'm and I'm lucky, like I did a lot of crazy stuff growing up. And luckily I'm old enough that there was no, you know, camera, cell phones and YouTube because that stuff would still be around. And I would, uh, I would never be able to go out. But when he fought Cormier the first time, you know, when he, and out wrestled him, I thought he out wrestled. I, I thought it was the most amazing thing I've ever seen. Like, I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. Yeah, there's so much that's amazing about him. I think for me, it's always been just that big game player in him, you know. And Floyd Mayweather, what made him great, he was never flat on fight night, right? He got some slow starts against Shane Mosley, but he was never really flat on fight night. And that's what's so impressive about the 50-0 and 0, is that maybe there were some training camp variables where he didn't have a great camp, but he always found a way on fight night. And John is that big game player who will dig deep in 2013 against Alexander Gustafson when, you know, two weeks prior, uh, you know, he's doing blow or whatever the hell he's doing, partying, right? So that is John Jones's most impressive attribute for me, uh, just his ability to rise to the occasion, his heart, right? Uh, Vitor Belfort, not the only fight where we've seen his, his heart. Chael Sonnen fight with the compound fracture in his toe, not the only time we've seen his heart. So uh, – that says nothing of the skills that Mike Winkeljohn tells you. We've only seen 40% of him showcase in the UFC. So uh, he's got it all. Uh, I, I really had a big appetite for the Reyes rematch that obviously is on hold for now. Um, but, you know, we'll see what comes out of this, right? Stranger things have happened than John Jones getting through this and fighting in four or five months, right? So uh, we'll see what happens. But certainly the last thing that he needed. And, uh, you know, I got to think these are some dark days for more reasons than, than one for, uh, for Johnny Bones.
Wasn't Reyes the guy that knocked out our buddy Joaquin Christensen in Oklahoma? That was his UFC debut. Yeah. Man. Scary. Oh, no What's funny is that we podcasted with Christensen the next day. He was sitting by the pool, you know, probably looked more handsome in previous days. Right. right. Nicest guy ever to sit down with and talk to. It was one of the most uplifting podcasts we've ever done. Yeah. More so than today's for sure, huh? <laughs> no, man. Yeah. But, man, he got flattened in half the night before he talked to you guys. I mean, just big got time. crumbled up against the fence, right? Oh, oh big time. You're so brutal. I got to ask you, can I ask you a slightly personal question? Oh, you can. Uh, there is no question you can ask me, my man. Tell me about the tattoo bet. Oh. All right, I'll try to do it as efficiently as possible, right? So uh, it wasn't the first tattoo bet I did on the Anakin Florian podcast, but obviously it was the first one that I lost, if you want to call it a loss. But these are thoughtful things, right? I would never do a tattoo bet for a tattoo that I either didn't want or wouldn't be comfortable having on my body for the rest of my life. So the first one was a Brazilian flag if Betch Cohea had beaten Ronda Rousey because Brazil – had a, a very special place in my heart at the time and still does. I had been there 25 times, and I thought, you know what? This would be fun promotionally for the podcast. If Betch can beat Ronda, we're going to get that Brazilian flag. I like the flag, like the colors, like Brazil, like the people. So there's always a backstory. Nick Diaz was the impetus for me sort of becoming a mixed martial arts fan. He was the first fighter that I watched sort of extensively as I was becoming an MMA fan. Always a numbers guy, uh, thought the 209 tattoo would be cool, and also thought it was a huge ask for Nate Diaz on two weeks' notice from drinking you know, tequila in Cabo to come beat Conor McGregor. So right before the podcast, I called Kenny Florian. and I was like, what do you think about doing this? And he's like, you're fucking crazy. What are you doing? Now, I thought it was all fun and games until it surfaced on Nathan Diaz's radar during one of the biggest fight weeks in UFC history. And that, in turn, made it surface on my boss's radar. And there were some dark hours there where I thought maybe my job was in jeopardy. So it uh, wasn't all good. Now, once Nate was, however, bothered by it, uh, I was getting the tattoo whether he won the fight or not. So it certainly made for a better story that he went and beat Conor McGregor. And, and I got the tattoo a few days later and uh, still wear it like a badge of honor, you know. But uh, it is what it is. It's, it's nice to have a chance to explain it to some people who think that, who didn't listen to the audio on the podcast and think I was just overwhelmingly dismissive of Nate's chances to such an extent that I would, you know, ink my body for the first time because of it. There was certainly uh, a conversation with, with my wife and plenty of thought that went into it. And uh, again, it's become a fun thing to talk about. And uh, there, it's not the last tattoo bet. I can assure you of that. <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. It's cool though, that, you know, you think about that, uh, obviously, with that with that notice, like the the excitement surrounding that fight, I've seen that fight over and over again, and I rarely go back and watch too many fights more than two or three times. But that's one that I've seen a bunch of times. Both of those fights, you know, one and two, just you know, you never knew what was going to happen. You you see Connor getting the better of Nate on the feet, um, but Nate was definitely getting getting his shots in in both fights. But I'll tell you, once that once he put Connor on his back, I was like, that's a wrap. That's a wrap. He's not going to survive. And I think that would be true. They could fight a hundred times. And if he puts Connor on his back, the same thing's going to happen every single time. Yeah, I think so too. I think so too. And I think that a trilogy fight is so exciting for the avid fans because they know the matchup just lends itself to, 
to something exciting happening, right? Even if it doesn't have divisional ramifications for Connor or Nate, even if it happens at 170 pounds, right? So, yeah, no, I'm excited to see it uh, if indeed that is what happens. You know, I just uh, – it's so crazy to think about, you know, Connor McGregor talking about this fighting season and Nate Diaz coming back and seemingly being ready to compete regularly. And now, you know, all of a sudden we're dealing with uh, with the coronavirus, you know. Just crazy. Right. Well, the, the good the good part will be once they do say go, you know, and, and I think that goes for all of us, uh, there's going to be so much enthusiasm and excitement about what's going to happen next because this is all this is all pending up. You know, if uh, anybody who's yeah. – you know, will know that energy is never created nor destroyed. So this is building up in all of us, you know, for the moment where – um, we all get to back, go back and, and watch some amazing fights. And I know that, uh, you know, your entire organization is saying, man, just tell us we can go, just tell us yeah. that we can go and we're going to go hard. And, uh, the cards are just going to be amazing, I think. And that's something that'll be a real treat after all of this, getting through all this to see uh, just amazing fight cards. Yeah. It's so funny because six months ago, I remember having conversations about the merits of a UFC off season. If let's say every year, we were dark in September, right, where the NFL is obviously king in the United States, where it's going to be maybe tough to compete potentially with college football on a Saturday or a Saturday night. Maybe you go dark the entire month of September. That first show, first weekend in October, be off the charts. People's appetite would be crazy for it. Now we've had this off season that none of us wanted or expected, and I'm not sure I want an off season anymore, right? Take a bye week here. Maybe you take two weeks every quarter, but for the most part, I think we're sort of conditioned to having fights every single Saturday night. And even though it, we don't need to devote six or seven hours per se, having a UFC show 80% of Saturday nights for two or three hours uh, is a must and something I think I, I am hoping is back in my life sooner rather than later, man. And you're right too, it, it, that once the schedule resumes in theory, I wouldn't be surprised if they do, uh, you know, every single weekend they're live for the rest of the year. Well, you, I mean, it's true what they say, you know, absence makes the heart grow fonder. Uh, you know, you compare the NFL season to the, the baseball season, you know, there's plenty of Red Sox games I don't see. You know what I mean? There's just too many, and, they, and, the, and the, the season is so very long. But every Sunday or every Thursday night or whatever, I am tuning in to see what the Patriots are going to do. And I think that, you know, with this, op, this forced offseason, I guess, I think it's going to be must-see TV when it comes back. Yeah. And I am, I am a huge Red Sox fan. I will say too, you know, baseball fans are a sensitive lot. I mean, Nomar Garcia Parra is my favorite athlete of all time, but, oh a, 50 game, but a 50 game baseball season, uh, sign me up. Like I'm all in, right. If the, if those are the stakes and, and circumstantially the season is so abbreviated that it's 50 games and it's wide open to that extent, to me, that's an injection of life that baseball needs. And I know baseball fans don't want to hear it. And I know in terms of the numbers, their sensitivities, even going from 162 to 154 games, but a 50 game major league baseball season that is must see TV, uh, I think has a chance to really bring that sport back. It would dial it right down to the end of the season where everybody and everybody would get a shot at, because you know, some teams get super hot at the end. Instead, you gave everybody a shot to get hot at the end. That would be really exciting, actually. We'll see. We'll see. Well, and you know, I think I think of guys like Chris Sale. You know what I mean, and how much damage they could do in a uh, in, in a fifty game season. Uh, and that goes for like all baseball players. You see how injury prone these guys get because there's just so right. many games night in and night out playing. You know, I always 
group, I, uh, I think it was John Cruck that said, like, like, how can you behave like that, and drink and eat like that when you're an athlete? He's like, I'm not an athlete. I'm a baseball player. Right. Um, yeah. And, but there's just so many games. It's so easy to get run down. I think at that shortened season, every game matters, less injuries, more excitement. Guys are going to throw harder. Guys are going to run harder. Guys are going to hit the ball. Yeah. And, and Adderall and greenies aren't legal anymore, right? <laughs> Right. Uh, I don't. I don't pay attention to these things. <laughs> <laughs> what was What was the best fight you've ever commentated? Like been to? What was your favorite fight of all time? Attended is different than the best fight I've ever called. I think the best fight I've called. Uh, granted, there's some recency bias, but I can't say there is a a greater fight than Zhang Wei Li versus Joanna Yan Jacek. There isn't a fight that I can put above that. Uh, Mark Hunt and Bigfoot Silva in Brisbane, Australia in 2013 is always one that comes to mind, but didn't have championship stakes like we did with the straw weights. In terms of the events, gosh, I mean, there have been so many. Uh, I think the, the stadium show in Australia was uh, a really special thing with Adesanya. Um, but, man, there's just so many, and they all kind of run together at this point, I think, for us, you know. Uh, so it's sort of hard when I get asked that question, despite the frequency with which I get asked that question, to have a great answer for, for you. Um, but again, I, I haven't called that many surefire Hall of Fame fights that you know are the fight wing of the Hall of Fame. I can assure you, Zhang Wei Li and Yuana, this month, if you can believe that, uh, is absolutely going to the Hall of Fame as soon as it's eligible. Great historian when it comes to that question. I, I, there was some dialogue. I mean, I think for me, you know, there's so many that I loved. Um, Bull Durham, <laughs> I guess, Raging Bull. Uh, but a warrior that I happened to play myself in in 2011, I actually believe was a very good martial arts, mixed martial arts movie. And yet people are so split on it. Either people think it was great or people think it was horseshit. So I loved Warrior, but I guess forced in this setting, I would say Raging Bull. I think it's the, the, the movies that really try to encompass what MMA is. It's a very difficult, uh, it's kind of like, you know, it's capturing a star kind of like it's a moving target all the time to properly capture it and still make it movie worthy and something that the masses want to watch. Like, you know, like, right. These things go are, are difficult because if you make an MMA movie that's specifically for the MMA fan, you know it's not going to have a draw outside of that group. It, it's someone's got to be really interested in the fight game to really want to. You know, I go back to Choke. Choke is like one of the most incredible movies I've ever seen, but because I'm so interested in that and to get a real unbiased, well, I wouldn't say unbiased, but an inside look, that was amazing. I think to make a movie for the masses about mixed martial arts, it's a very difficult thing. Well, and I know people were critical of some of the things in Warrior, right? The ground in town was a little bit fictional. It just seemed just so severe. And I think at that time, for people like Dana White, it's like, can you not brutalize our sport that we put in 10 years trying to, you know, make people realize what it actually is? Because there's so much superficial violence uh, in mixed martial arts, whether it's, uh, you know, a, a cut on your forehead that's, you know, 10 pints of blood that requires one stitch, you know? So I feel like Warrior in some respects maybe could have done a better job of not sort of glorifying some of the violence on the ground. But uh, you're right, it's a tough initiative, and that's why there haven't been all that many great ones. I forgot about that movie. I really like that movie. Like, that got me fired up. Well, I, I do think that, I mean, there were certain things that maybe seemed fictional to people, but overall uh, the acting was good which I think 
isn't always the case in mixed martial arts movies. So uh, I don't know. I'm gonna have to watch it again. But I got the uh, I got the warrior poster right here. You know, I, I'm disappointed that it didn't do better in the uh, in the box office. But what are you gonna do? So, question for you: uh, Who who wore it better? Who bled more, Sean Shirk or Joe Stevenson? Oh my gosh, I gotta go Shirk, right? I mean, how do I not go Shirk? You know? Oh man, it's incredible. I remember when I first met Kenny Florian, and I'm sure most of your viewers understand those references of Shirk and Joe Stevenson. But he gave me all of his fights on like CDs, right? wasn't that long ago, but he gave me his fights on discs. And because I, I needed to watch the Kenny Florian library because I was going to sit in the studio and be hosting a weekly show with this guy. And, uh, you know, so he sh I, sh I watched every one of his fights pretty much in a two-day span except for his fight against Sean Shirk and then uh, watched that bloodbath, you know, several years later. But, uh, yeah, man, what a crazy sport. What a crazy time. It's always interesting when we talk about Ken Flo's career and the evolution of the game, right? You wonder how competitive he'd be against guys like Tony Ferguson or Khabib. And he'd probably be the first to tell you it'd be tough, you know. Um, and it's only, you know, 11, 12 years or so, just the evolution of the sport, the dynamic nature of it now. Um, it's really, uh, it's been fun to watch and have a cage side seat to see. I mean, historically, that division has been super tough. I mean, maybe they all have been, but it's like, seems like that one's been the toughest. Yeah, well, it's crazy to think about historically that it didn't exist there for a while. But yeah, I think 55 and 70, uh, I don't have to tell you guys, has been just ruthless in the UFC. Getting in, oftentimes you've had to punch a short notice ticket uh, and getting into the top 25. Forget the top 15 that the fighters see. You know, sometimes we're privy to that top 25. Just brutal trying to crack that top 25 at 70 or 55. Just torture. I think that I think the turn has been with 55. That's that's kind of a newer thing uh, where there's so much competition at 55. I think welterweight's probably been the most consistent in the UFC as far as competition, it's always been there. Even though you look back to the earlier UFCs, you remember guys like Randy Couture and Chuck Liddell kind of ruling that bigger guy, those those as those bigger guys. But the welterweight division, you know, with BJ Penn, with GSP, you know, historically that's just been really just a talent-packed weight class. Matt Hughes, sometimes it's fifty-five. Yeah, Matt Hughes, of course. Yeah, no, I think that's fair. I think that's fair, and. Oftentimes when we say, oh, the glamour division in the UFC, it was light heavyweight. And maybe I'm dating myself a little bit a decade ago, but when you just thought about Rampage and Rashad and Chuck and all the guys at 205 pounds, the big names, uh, not heavyweights, but certainly a lot of those fights were ending in knockouts or finishes. And, uh, but you're right, 70-55 certainly is the wheelhouse. And, uh, but yeah, 55, right? I mean, it, there wasn't a division for it was still and still is considered one of the lighter weight classes. So uh, that's why most people, I think, believe if you had a majority that George St. Pierre, given what he did, is the, is the single greatest or most accomplished you know, fighter of all time. And, and you saw him come back after come out of retirement. Uh, obviously, you know, a few steps slower, but still got the job done. Right, up a division. You know, say what you want about the matchup being favorable. And again, he was probably a two and a half to one favorite that night against Michael Bisping. So there was certainly some strategy involved, as, as there always is with George St. Pierre. But, you know, not really any blemish, right, in terms of outside the octagon. No performance-enhancing drug issues whatsoever. No amateur wrestling background yet became... Uh, the guy who applied wrestling principles to MMA more brilliantly than ever. I mean, he made the takedown a thing of beauty, right? You watch him against Tiago Alves, 
he had the crowd ooing and eyeing, eating out of his hands with every takedown. And, uh, you know, no doubt that, uh, that that division, you know, is where it is historically because of the, you know, contributions that he made. And you can probably, you see now he continues to be the epitome of, of a martial artist. He's spending a ton of time oh, yeah. working on his jujitsu and man, if that guy has, you know, gets the, uh, the John Danaher leg game going, I mean, he's pretty much the complete martial artist, right? What doesn't get talked about enough, I think, is how many hours he's put in for the fellow fighters, right? I mean, just in terms of the UFC talent, right? Olivier Obama-Mercier, Kevin Lee recently, and all the other guys that have trickled up to TriStar, Mursad Bektich. But when we sit down with these guys for their fighter meetings on Thursdays, a lot of these guys talk about getting daily reps for an entire training camp with George St. Pierre. And, of course, the last thing he ever wants for any of that is credit, but uh, certainly worth mentioning, you know. Hey, I, you know, I don't know how much you're allowed to talk about other organizations or whatever, but, you know, speaking of Danaher and GSP, you know much about Gary Tonin? So I've been watching him a little. I mean, there's a ferocity with which he competes that is super special. So, yeah, I watched one of his fights at some ungodly hour on my phone in whatever country I was in and uh, definitely consider myself a fan of that guy. And exciting to see really where he can take it. Uh, again, there's a little bit of a Ryan Hall thing there, if I'm not mistaken, in terms of just getting more walks to the cage, right? He hasn't competed all that often, and he's got a lot of, I think, business acumen and, and different endeavors and things going on, but uh, I think he can do some real special things in MMA if given the chance. Yeah, I'd, I'd recommend if you haven't seen it, he had a tremendous match with Cron Gracie um, a while back, and you can see a little bit of where his heart comes from. And having met him a bunch of times, we've had him at the academy Super nice guy. Uh, maybe the Ryan Hall-Gary Tonin matchup is one we might be able to see if Gary gets a few fights under his belt, kind of gets yeah. contracts. Be- yeah, that was, that was cool to see Gary and, and uh, Crone sort of going back and forth on social media a little bit uh, back in the day. Gary yeah. has wanted that rematch so bad for so many years. <laughs> like, that one's killing him. Yeah, that's cool. But the, uh, one, one thing we haven't talked about is, the, is kind of the evolution of the women in, in mixed martial arts. And no place is it more true than in the UFC. You guys have the most talent for female fighters there are on the planet. There's no far and away. Um, just amazing at every weight class. I'll tell you, like one of the best fights that I've seen, even though she ended up losing, but maybe the best show of heart I've seen was that last fight with Macy Barber. Um, I've never seen anything like that before. That was amazing. Were you ringside? She's- Yes, she is special, right? Uh, even in defeat, uh, there's just so many special qualities that Macy Barber has. I, I find it hard to believe that eventually, if health doesn't get in her way, that she won't break through and become a UFC champion. Big picture on the women, it's crazy to think the first UFC women's fight was in 2013. What actually felt like just as big a deal for me because I didn't work the Rousey Carmouche fight was we had heard so much about the strawweight division, about 115 pounds being where really the talent is in women's MMA. So 2014, the first women's fight at strawweight in UFC history was Tina Lahadamaki against Claudia Gadelia. And Ever since, man, that division's been all the rage. Certainly, Joanna was the one who took it to the next level, but that division is what I always begin the conversation about women's MMA with. You know, Amanda Nunes and Valentina Shevchenko obviously are doing what they're doing, and Amanda, historically unbelievable. Uh, It's going to be very hard for anybody to touch her. But look at the depth of this strawweight division. Look at that top five. Tatiana Suarez, the best wrestler in the division, and then the rest are all former champions. You know, every single one of them. Nama Yunus, Andrade, Joanna Yun, Jacek. So 
Um, I don't know if it's coming across on video, but I'm very excited about the strawweight division and Amanda Hebos and, and all the injection of new talent that's coming in. So I, I remember Rose saying a while back that she was kind of disenfranchised with fighting and might not do it anymore. Has that gone away? Is she going to continue to fight, do you think? Yeah, well, she has a fight scheduled, obviously, against Jessica Andrade, the rematch here coming up on April 18th. So we'll see what happens with that. But, yes, I think she uh, she's always going to have some mental hurdles that she needs to clear. But I think she's put in the right work. A lot of people are, I think, reticent to put in that type of work because – it's mental and not physical and sometimes very arduous to sort of feel like you're extracting anything from it. But yeah, I think she's got an appetite to compete again and uh, we'll see how it goes. You know, the Andrade fight I think will be telling in terms of, of her fighting future. She doesn't strike me as somebody who's going to stick around to take part if she's not going to be uh, on some sort of championship path, but we'll see. Right. And I, and I, uh, Sorry, go ahead, George. I, I was just going to say, I know you got stuff to do and some kids do uh, wrangle, but uh, yeah, I know. But listen, I appreciate you coming on with us. Um, make sure you tell your partner, Kenny, that when Jay is not on camera, he talks about all the times he beat him up. And Jay beat up Kenny in the academy growing I will up. Tell you, I will tell you about one time. <laughs> so I, I was able to catch Kenny at the end of a training session. He had been, this is when he was doing Miss Martial Arts. He'd come in and he round after round until he couldn't walk anymore. Right. And I had been training for like 25 minutes that day. And I was, I'm just going to say lucky enough to have caught him. I took off my gi top and my belt, threw it on the ground and ran out of the room. <laughs> and three guys came into the locker room and like, Kenny says, if you don't get out there, like there's, there's going to be a problem. And I went out, I got the beating of my life. The beating of wow, he wouldn't yeah, let me tap. Yeah. He would he would start choking me, and I would get ready to put my hand up, and then he'd let it go. <laughs> I think yeah, we were for like twenty minutes, but I wanted to tap like ten times. No, I think his competitiveness uh, is probably his best attribute. You know, I really just he just wants it. You know, so badly. You know, and I still thought he was going to break through every goddamn time. You know. Me too. I was sitting there midway through that Jose Aldo fight. I really thought that uh, somehow, some way, but the body just gave up on him, you know? Right. So, uh, no, I appreciate the chance to come on and talk with you, obviously. And uh, I think this time with all of uh, the negatives, the positives are that we get a chance to connect like this, obviously, with people like you that are doing a good thing and, and have been doing this consistently for a while now, right? I mean, you guys have been doing the show a long time. Years, five years, I think. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. We're coming up on our five-year anniversary in like two weeks, so there you go. Hey, so um, obviously everybody knows who you are, but if, if they only know you from the UFC, they can catch you and Kenny on your podcast. Yeah, Anakin Florian Podcast. We do a new show every Monday and uh, trying to get more content out there uh, later in the week on the, on the new YouTube channel that we launched a few months ago and uh, just hoping to hit this UFC road soon, my man, you know. We're looking forward to seeing you out there. Mm -hmm. Anything else that you got going on that you want to mention that people should check out? No, we appreciate the support of the podcast sincerely. You know, I miss seeing my guy, Ken Flo, obviously on the road, not calling fights with him anymore. So, so thankful for that outlet. And it really is the chance for us to give back to fans, right? And we pulled the content for a couple of weeks just to gauge the appetite a couple of years ago. And it was pretty heartwarming to see people reach out because it is a lot of work, you know, and I do devote my entire Monday to it. And I feel like it's, a, it's just the only way I can see other than money to, you know, help fans, especially during a time like this. So I appreciate the chance to uh, shout it out and, and chop it up with you guys. 
Well, we certainly we certainly love the podcast. Looking forward to each and every release. Uh, some really interesting content. So if you guys are out there and you haven't listened to it, check out the Anakin Florian podcast. Uh, and John, thank you so much. Uh, we wish you nothing but the best. We hope to connect again soon and uh, keep yourself and your family safe. Same to all of you guys. Thank you for having me. Hopefully we can uh, do it again soon. All right, brother. That's awesome. Take it easy. Guys, thank you. You guys too. Take care of yourselves.